join us. Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, startle us with your truth and open us to your love. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this morning is the first Sunday after Easter Sunday, and much of the time that means that this week we hear the story we have come to know as that of Doubting Thomas. As the story goes, it's the first day of the week, and the disciples are locked in a room hiding, quote, for fear of the Jews. It needs to be said here that the disciples themselves are Jewish. So the Jews they are afraid of are the temple authorities. They would likewise have been afraid of the Roman authorities. There is nothing to be feared about Jewish people, of course. In this story, the resurrected Jesus suddenly appears in that locked room to visit the disciples. But the disciple Thomas is not among him among them, so he will be one of the last disciples to see that Jesus has been raised from the dead. When he does hear, Thomas insists that he will not believe it until he sees Jesus in the flesh and touches the very wounds in his hands and side. And lo and behold, Thomas gets exactly that opportunity in the very next scene. And many of us have been told that the moral of this story is, do not be like Thomas, you must learn to believe without asking for evidence. Now that isn't necessarily a bad lesson of faith or bad interpretation of the story, but I do find it simplistic. The fact is that many of us would have reacted just as Thomas did, it's also true that back in verse 20 in the first part of this story, we are clearly told that all of the disciples get a good look at Jesus' wounded hands and side before Thomas does. Perhaps more to the point for all of us is that countless Christians in every place and time must deal with the fact that we will never get the chance that Thomas got. A dozen or so people who appear in these last chapters of the Gospels are the exceptions, but every Christian person since then has had to decide what to think about the resurrection without the benefit of seeing Jesus. So what are we supposed to think about the resurrection? I want to take this opportunity to state clearly, I know there are a variety of feelings and beliefs about the resurrection in this very room, and I respect all of them. Some of you are comfortable with a quite literal interpretation of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Others of you are not at all comfortable with such literalism and believe that these stories must be metaphorical. And many of you fall somewhere in between. I respect all of these points of view, and I think there's room for all of us here. I also think there is something we all have in common. And we even have it in common with Thomas. 
Regardless of what we believe about the story, we have to decide what the resurrection is going to mean for us. No matter what we believe about the ancient story, we have to decide if this is a story that is going to change our lives. And that picks up where we left off last week with the story of Easter Sunday. Death does not have the last word. We are Easter people. That's what I told you last week. That's how I concluded the sermon on Easter Sunday. Death does not have the last word. We are Easter people. Now that claim that I made begs a question on which I'd like to go deeper this morning. What does it mean in practical terms for us to believe that death does not have the last word? What does that look like for modern people? If the story of Easter is about choosing to believe that death does not have the last word, to choose life instead of death, that is actually not a message original to Easter. In the Bible, that same message goes way back to the beginnings of the Old Testament. One of the clearest stories about it, and one that helps us see the connection to our own lives, comes from what Moses says to the Israelites when he comes down from Mount Sinai. This is when Moses gives the Israelites the law. Not just the Ten Commandments, but all the codes of justice and mercy and fairness that were meant to govern their lives together. The whole essence of God's giving the law to the Israelites is God's hope that they will live well together and thrive. And Moses warns them that if they disregard the law, it will be their undoing. Then at the conclusion of reading the entire law to the Israelites, Moses makes his case to the Israelites with these words. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today, by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, and observing his commandments, decrees, and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you do not hear but are led astray to bow down to other gods, and to serve them, I declare to you today that you will perish. You shall not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. Life and death. Blessings and curses. In other words, Moses is telling them Death must not have the last word. Be Easter people. It's a choice that's been around since the Old Testament. And Jesus' resurrection on Easter is a new and powerful way of making that message clear all over again. 
In ancient Israel, following the law and choosing life meant that the people lived with an ethic of justice and mercy. Vulnerable people were protected and provided for. Generosity toward God and others was required. When things went wrong between people, rules were in place to correct those wrongs and to lead people to forgiveness. It was meant to be a life-giving culture and not a death-dealing one. Later in the Old Testament, the prophets would remind the Israelites of this reality when they had forgotten the law and were dealing in death rather than in life. Unfortunately, the people seemed to choose death over life all the time. Walter Brueggemann is one of the great biblical scholars of the last century. He writes that the choice of death in ancient Israel, the choice for death over life, happened primarily in three ways. First, they worshipped wealth. The Israelites became enamored with King Solomon's riches and the glorious temple that he had built because they thought it was a sign of their own prosperity. This is somewhat equivalent in our own time to how the Kardashians are famous for being famous. People are obsessed with them even though there is no benefit in doing so. In their fascination with wealth, the Israelites lost sight of the fact that Solomon's temple was supposed to point them to God. Wealth was death-dealing for them. Second, the Israelites become seduced by power. They wish for their kings to protect them from other people, forgetting that the law expected them to act graciously toward their neighbors. This is something like our reliance on home security systems. Sure, they offer some reduction in the risk of theft, but no matter how comprehensive your system may be, there is never a guarantee have you ever considered that what tends to make people feel safe is knowing their neighbors? Longing for more defense and protection never satisfies. Placing our faith there is a death-dealing proposition. Third, the Israelites idolized wisdom. Which doesn't sound bad, but what is meant by wisdom in this context is that the people tried to establish their own fiercely independent control over their lives. And things in this life cannot all be controlled. And so in this struggle to control things, the people lost their trust and reliance on God. They made a bargain with death. And in all three of these ways, wealth and power and control, the Israelites chose death over life. 
So the question for us, modern Easter people, people who believe that death does not have the last word, the question for us becomes, what in our own times are the death-dealing things? What are the things that steal life from us and that replace God's good gifts with things that only bring us pain or leave us wanting more? Some things never change. Wealth and power and control are idols for us, just like they were in ancient times. How many times a month, a week, a day, do we choose these death-dealing things for ourselves? How often do we buy things we think will satisfy us, only to end up wanting something else? How often do we wish to exercise power over another person, only to be reminded that we are lonely? How often do we grasp for control in some aspect of our lives, only to discover how helpless we really are? And that is because wealth and power and control are instruments of death. Some of the other death-dealing powers in our lives are the complex human systems in which we all participate. Systems we are inevitably stuck in but need to resist. We live in an economic system in which the gap between rich and poor continues to widen dramatically. This would seem to be good for at least the people on the top, but it's actually death-dealing to all of us. It creates rising rates of everything from crime to homelessness to health care costs. It makes us afraid to drive through different neighborhoods in our own city or to walk down the street after dark. It disconnects us to pe from people who are different from us. And all of these things diminish our humanity. Racism is a system that works in much the same way. One might assume that racism is only a problem for the oppressed minority, but it is a death-dealing thing for all of us. The fear that comes with harboring prejudice, the social problems that result from unequal opportunity, the myopic worldview that comes from only being around people who share your background. All of these things diminish everyone's humanity. All of these things steal life from us. They are instruments of death. And of course, there are the death-dealing things that are not systemic or universal, but are more unique to you. Is there an addiction with which you struggle? Is there an estranged relationship in which you cannot offer forgiveness? Is there a secret of your past that is trapped inside of you, churning out anxiety into your life day after day? All of these things, 
I've been describing. All of them are what the Bible means when it warns us against choosing death. The invitation the Bible gives us over and over again is to choose life. To believe that these instruments of death will never be the right choices. They will never have the last word. We are called instead to be Easter people. There is a long list of the ways of death that are present in our world. These things are so hard to escape. Perhaps knowing that helps us to be a little more compassionate and sympathetic toward dear old doubting Thomas who had so much trouble believing in life after death. You see, he, like all of us, lived in a world that gave him great confidence in the reliability of death. He could count on it. When you're dead, you're dead. And so, when the other disciples come to him, claiming that they have seen the risen Lord, it is no wonder that he demands proof. And here it is extremely important to remember how Jesus responds to Thomas. He invites him to come and get the proof he needs. Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answers him, My Lord. My Lord. He was so overcome by the relief he felt to finally choose life. Thomas's doubting may not be the strongest indication of faith, so what? Jesus wants to give him whatever he needs to reorient himself around life instead of death. And God wants that for all of us. If the most important question around resurrection is about what exactly happened to Jesus, how historically and biologically he got up from the tomb, I will have to confess I do not know. What I do believe is that learning to choose life instead of death and having faith in that meaning of resurrection, that can change your life.